0: Turn, if you will, to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, we are dealing with the Gospels. through the prologues and uh, my approach to the Gospels is go through each individual prologue because they're, they're fairly unique in the way they present material up until you get to John the Baptist and then you can start uh, doing somewhat of a harmony of the Gospels. So we did Mark, that was quick, though we spent a long time on the life of John Mark. Now we're doing the uh, prologue of Matthew. And just again, just a quick picture of how much material is in these prologues. Matthew's kind of medium, Luke's pretty big, John's low, and Mark is one verse. So, five words, or seven words whatever the approach of every gospel all of the gospels begin with Jesus as Messiah all of the gospels begin with Jesus as the son of God those are the two things that each gospel specifically presents and remember uh, and I'll be telling you for a long time that the gospels start out with no confusion about who Jesus is you don't start out with Jesus and you're wondering who he is some messianic secret wondering who he is Um, And then as you go through the Gospels, he kind of comes to a consciousness of himself, grows in that consciousness. The Gospels don't do that at all. That is false doctrine. That is the world's attempt to undermine the Gospels. Jesus knew who he was. As it says in the Psalms, I was cast upon my, my mother's breast from the womb by you. In Matthew, we have come to the place of the early life of Jesus and Herod is a significant figure we've gone through the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 1-17 from Abraham to David to Christ, Matthew 1-18 to the end of the chapter deals with the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and his name, Jesus Savior whenever we say Jesus we should always think of Savior, Satan wants to make us think of God's against us God's not for us um, he accuses us, but Jesus says, "No, remember my name. I'm a Savior, and I'm mighty to save." We dealt with uh, the first part of Matthew chapter two: Herod, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Herod, uh, the Magi, and uh, um, that was that was actually for me a good time going through that. I hope it was a good time for you. This week, this Sunday, I'm trying to finish up Matthew. And it's kind of one of those difficult situations where each one of these sections, there's three sections after the Magi. There's Jesus' flight to Egypt. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go to Egypt. There's Herod murdering the children, the baby boys of Bethlehem. There's the death of Herod. And then there's the family returning from Egypt and migrating up to Nazareth. Each one of those sections is really not enough material for a message. Even two of them kind of leaves you sort of hanging. Three is probably a little too much. It's just uh, when you're preaching, sometimes you get stuck with these sort of odd odd geometry of the passage, and you just have to sort of do the best you can. So we're going to try to cover these three sections of this last half of Matthew chapter 2 today. Remember that these sections, Matthew 1 and 2, this whole prologue is full of Old Testament reference. Abraham, David to Christ, the genealogy, takes you from Genesis 12 to the present, throughout the whole entire Old Testament. The conception and naming of Jesus is focused on Isaiah seven fourteen, 14, and by that entry point in Isaiah, it's really talking about Isaiah 1 through 12, all that is there in that chapter 7 verse, that's what's being pointed to. Sorry. when we looked at the birth of Jesus and the Magi we had a quote from Micah 2 that Jesus is born in Bethlehem that's where the Messiah will be born these last three sections that we'll be looking at each one of them is a narrative they start out by telling you a piece of history Of the early life of Jesus and his family. And each section ends with a quote from scripture. That this bit of narrative is in accordance with this passage of scripture. Now as you look at these sort of six references to the Old Testament. Some are broad references. The genealogy. The last one when it says that he might be called a Nazarene. That's actually a summary statement of what the prophets are saying some of these are specific. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah; those are specific passages that are being referenced. And of those specific passages, some are predictive. Isaiah seven, you know, unto us a child. <coughs> sorry, <laughs> um, uh, she, she's going to bear a son and is going to call him call his name God with us. Micah chapter five. He's going to be born. There's this prediction of a Messiah to be born. But as we'll see today, Hosea 11 is not a prediction. It's just a reference in Scripture where God is just making an observation, as it were. The same with Jeremiah 31. Rachel lamenting her children. That's just an observation. It's not a prediction. It's just kind of an interesting, I don't know, way that the New Testament approaches the Old Testament We tend to think, well, there's all these predictions in the Old Testament, simple statements of something to come, fulfilled in Jesus. But that's not so. That's not how the New Testament references the Old Testament. There's generalizations. Sometimes the New Testament is pointing to a passage as an entry point, like Isaiah 7.14. Don't just stop at Isaiah 7.14 Read everything before and read everything after, because it's a section that is a whole entire section that is built on one another. There's structure to the section. That child that's born in chapter 7 is talked about in chapter 4 and talked about in chapter 9 and talked about in chapter 11. That child born in chapter 7 is the one who is going to be the king of a kingdom, talked about in chapter 2. Talked about in chapter 9, talked about in chapter 11, talked about in chapter 12. See, that's a piece. You just can't just read one verse, pull it out, and say, okay, there's a fulfillment. You have to see the whole thing. And so as we look at these passages, that's what we'll be doing. Now remember, we are in the days of Herod the king. Jesus is born at the very end of Herod's reign. And Herod had a kingdom. He was appointed by Rome and given a kingdom, so he was seen as a king over, you know, pretty much all of Palestine, what we would consider Old Testament Palestine anyway. So there's a picture of it. Remember, we were centered in Bethlehem. Bethlehem has this long history of a lot of incidents, a lot of famous and infamous things happening. The most famous now being Jesus is born there. Matthew 2.12, we read, and having been warned of God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The story of Magi is brought to a close. We don't read of them anymore. We don't know how long they stayed with Jesus and Joseph and Mary. We don't know that. But we know that they serve their purpose to bear witness that Jesus is the Messianic King and Savior of the world. They left by another way. And by leaving another way, it says here, they bought some time for the family, Joseph and his family. Because Herod was left guessing about the exact identity of the Messiah, so he's sitting there waiting for these magi to show up. And we don't know how long it took for Herod to finally figure out that these guys had fooled him. But it bought time for the family to escape to Egypt. And the expensive gifts that they brought would be needful presents provision for these refugees fleeing to Egypt living there and then migrating to Nazareth so we come now to our passage and let's ask the Lord to be with us Heavenly Father we come to you again on uh, this morning that we have set aside as a body to come and to worship you to come and to hear from your word and Lord we are just super needy We're super needy all the day long. Lord, you can take us up and fill our souls one day and the very next we're in a pit. (laughs) Um, We're clear one day and uh, Lord, just cloudy the next. Um, And Lord, we need you every hour. We just don't need you to speak to us one time a year. We need you to speak to us every day. We need your Holy Scriptures every day. Always speaking to us. Always encouraging us. Always establishing our souls in faith and hope and love. Always bringing truth to us. Always reproving us where we need it. And Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, we don't glory in men. We're glad for people who can teach the word, make it plain, or even uh, make it beautiful. But Lord, in the end, it's your Holy Spirit that works in our hearts and minds and lives. And that's what we ask for this morning. We want to have fellowship with you. We want to learn from you. We want to be encouraged by you and established for sure. But in the end, all of that is meaningless if we are not walking with you and having fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we just ask you to give us fellowship in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. And, Lord, some of these things might seem a bit esoteric. A new exodus, a new Moses, a new people of God, a new covenant. Um, Lord, just uh, pray that you would just well up in our souls, the truth of these things, and that we will be excited about what you have, the treasures you have placed in your word, all those pointers in the Old Testament, pointing to your son and the glory that he brings into the world by his death and burial and resurrection and ascension and coronation, all that we are heirs of. Um, Lord, just let it shine in our hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 2, 13 begins one little section of Joseph taking his family down to Egypt. Now the visit of the Magi was significant in many levels. It reinforced with, certainly with Joseph and Mary, it reinforced the recognition that this son is a special gift from God, and we have a special responsibility. They had brought provisions that would carry them on their migrations. No doubt they had some discussions and you kind of wondered what those might be. And did they mention that they felt a little uneasy around Herod? They didn't know what to do with this guy. He looked a little cagey. But they were, they were paying attention to their mission. We don't know. But they left. They, when they had gone, then things started to happen. And you sort of see that the Lord carves out times and places where there are these sort of special times where you're meeting together with some brother, sister, brothers, or sisters, and it's just a time of fellowship, and you sort of feel like God has a little glass jar around you. Nothing's going to happen. And that time has been carved out for you and for others in a very special way. And then God lifts the glass up and says, okay, time to move on. It's kind of like what I feel like here. After they had gone, the glass jar comes up, and now we're going to have to deal with the reality of someone trying to kill the Son of God. Your son. Your child. So when they had gone, now the angel says, all right. There's some things to do. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. This is not the first time this has happened. This has happened about five or six times in this whole passage. The angel appears. Throughout the prologue, there's this very dynamic method for guidance by God. There's dreams and there's angels. Now, understand that these people had an Old Testament and they had, as far as they knew, a back cover to that Old Testament. And these dreams and these visions that they were having were not additions to the Old Testament. They didn't break out a scroll and say, I need to write this down and include it behind Isaiah down at the local synagogue. That's not how they considered these dreams. visions. These dreams, these appearances of angels to him are messages that are brief and are succinct and to the point. They're messages that are purposeful. They mean something to their lives then and there. They're only part of Scripture because they're part of the history of Jesus. So they're recorded for our benefit because they're part of that history. But in terms of what those dreams and those, those speakings of the angels were to Mary and Joseph, they were to them personally and them alone to give them direction in their life. They were to give immediate guidance in an unusual circumstance. They are not the everyday norm. Joseph didn't wake up every day and have an angel tell him what to do, what to have for breakfast or anything like that. So we have, you know, in Christendom among our brothers and sisters all over the world, There are those who would say, well, God doesn't speak in dreams and send angels in dreams anymore. And the main reason they give is because we don't add to scripture. And whenever I hear that, I just go, ah, you guys are really good on a lot of things. But on this one, you're a total flop. These dreams don't add to the Bible. Other than in this case, they're just part of a history of Jesus. If God gives me a dream and he has, if he gives you a dream and he has given you all dreams that are real, that are very distinguishable from all the other dreams you've ever had in your life. And you know they're from God because they have these characteristics. They're very brief. They're very succinct. They are purposeful. And you know they're from the Lord. And they're there to give you either guidance in something or an unusual circumstance in which the Lord is appearing to you. I could recount some of them from you. You don't wake up every morning looking for a dream. But every now and then God gives you one. We don't take the back cover off our Bible and paste it on after, you know, the book of Revelation. We don't confuse dreams from God or visions from God. We don't confuse those with the inscripturation of the Bible. And that's what we have to see here. God will use dynamic things to direct us. And I'm always surprised when those who would say that, you know, dreams and visions were for a past era that they always pray to the Lord for guidance. And I wonder, well, how do you get this guidance in subjective things that are not, you're not being specifically told in the Bible? You pray for that guidance all the time and somehow you figure out that you discern it but it can't be dynamic, of course, because that would be bad and It's just kind of a very confusing, self-defeating, and contradictory version of things. But I spent 10 years in Pentecostalism, around it. I was in it, but not of it. I didn't know any better, didn't know where else to go. And I'm going to tell you what, the dreams and visions they talked about, for the most part, were not succinct and to the point. They were not purposeful. They were not brief. They were not for immediate guidance. And they were everyday norms for some of them. Totally different from the dreams we encounter here. And so I wish my brethren who want to say, you know, God doesn't speak dynamically anymore, that they would realize that, sure, there's a lot of people who get confused on that topic, but the answer is not to just deny the topic. The answer is to be clear on the topic and to be correct on the topic. As Paul had to tell the Corinthians, you know, you guys speaking in tongues, you're doing it wrong. The answer is not to throw out tongues. I thank God I speak with tongues more than you all. The guy writing the New Testament that we the, were supposed to replace tongues, the guy writing it in the process of writing it, said, I thank God I, I speak with tongues more than all of you. So Paul's solution to the dynamic interventions of God was not to deny them We're not to take them and make them a pursuit in and of themselves and use them to dazzle and puff up. The action is to look at the scriptures, see what they are, see what they're for, and let that regulate our life. The Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, the angel of the Lord. When the angel of the Lord came, he had this urgent message, get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now, we don't know if they were sleeping. They, they did leave by night, but <clears throat> this was just an urgent appeal. You have to get going. There's things happening you're not going to like. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now, this was a natural place to go and to get lost. If you didn't want to be found, go and get lost, Right? It was a natural place to go because at that time, there were about a million Jews in Egypt. In and around Alexandria. And so as an easy place, in a sense, they're not going to go and be a foreigner among Egyptians. They're going to go to have asylum for a season among their own kindred. Among people who believe like them. Among the Jewish population. So It was a natural place to go and it was often a place in the Old Testament Where Israelites would go and take refuge. Abraham. Genesis 13. Jeroboam fled to Egypt. I believe Jeremiah went to Egypt. So it was a place you could readily go. When you needed to get out of Israel for some reason or another. And again the directive is complete. It's not just purposeful and succinct. But it's complete. Go and remain there until I tell you. That's a complete command. Joseph has everything he needs to know. Really short, but really you know, easy to understand. Maybe not easy to accomplish, but easy to understand. Go to Egypt. I got to figure out how to do that. And stay there until God tells me to come back. So pretty, pretty simple instructions. And then God also gives some reasons, because he feels like, you know, Joseph needs to understand the reason behind this. Something that we, as we're reading the narrative of Matthew, know is happening. But, you know, Joseph, he's not reading Matthew at that time. He's producing the material of Matthew. He is the narrative. And so God gives him clarity as to why you need to go and why it's so urgent. Somebody is trying to kill. Jesus, And think about this. Here are two people minding their own business. The woman gets pregnant. You know, she knows why, because God spoke to her, but kind of out of nowhere. And is put in a real social dilemma. Joseph is put in the same social dilemma. They finally work through it and say, okay, this is great. You know, we're the parents of the Messiah. Who's going to save the whole world? All right. We're we're chewing on this. We're working on this. We're buying every parent manual we can think of and get our hands on. We're going to talk to everybody. How do you raise the Messiah? And Just when things are calming down, some very important rich people appear out of nowhere at your house, give you a bunch of stuff. Maybe give you a little bit of a warning about Herod, but they're like, hey, here's the Messiah. You're like, wow, this is really great. I got some gold. I got some stuff to smell good. Maybe heal some of the little sores. And next thing you know, an angel's telling you, Herod, the most brutal king that has been in power in the land of Israel in 150 years, is going to bring every resource he has against you to destroy you and your child. That's a lot to take in. So folks, when you think you're having a bad day. When you think things are tough. Remember Mary and Joseph. They walked with God. And they went through trials. And they went through troubles. And they went through complications. And they went through opposition. And so will you. It is part of walking with God in a present evil world. Now, there's one phrase in here that we're going to see again. We're going to see a total of five times the child and his mother. This phrase occurs almost in this form in 118. It occurs here. Well, it occurs up above in 211. It occurs here in 213 and 214. One of the things about this phrase, the child and his mother, is Matthew carefully preserves the reality, the fact that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. Never is Joseph said to be the father. It's the child and his mother. And secondly, it demonstrates the priority of Jesus. Neither Mary nor Joseph are the focus of what is happening here. They're very secondary. This is about the child. This is about Jesus. This is about the Messiah. The child and his mother. And any attempt to try to put Mary next to Jesus is just this passage just says no. She's not. It's the child. That's the focus. Not his mother. So Joseph is an obedient fellow. Pretty simple. He doesn't complicate things. He doesn't go, well, let me give me some more instruction. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Some of us would sit there probably and try to elaborate a little bit, maybe ask for another angel to come and clarify one of my peculiar questions I might have. But not so Joseph. Simple guy, straightforward. God speaks. I'm going to act. He's not going to mull around. He's not going to be pensive. He's not going to brood. He's going to do it. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night. And left for Egypt. He didn't wait until the morning. He didn't go, man, I am so tired. I just got to get another couple hours of sleep. The sense of urgency that the angel had conveyed gripped his soul. It was carrying him along. And you can imagine the flurry and the hubbub. We're going to Egypt. Okay, what does that mean? We've heard other people go to Egypt. Maybe we know a little bit about it what's going to be there just imagine you know what mary's going to feel she's going to be a woman she's going to feel the the oh, this isn't safe this is this isn't something i want to do there's going to be that female hesitancy because it's her job to make sure the nest is secure she's going to feel that what are we going to pack what are we going to leave what about food been reading uh, or actually listening to fault lines and listening to the story of the life of Vodi Bauckham, very entertaining, about I think it was his mom or his dad that traveled on a bus out to LA for a few days and they brought a few days of food, but they ate it all the first day, that was that, they just went hungry until they got there. I was just thinking of, re-thinking of that because I'd just been listening to that as I came to this passage. What do you do about food? Traveling at night is precarious. There's no city lights. There's wild animals. Particularly on the way to Egypt, there's wild animals that will eat you. There's possible robbers. I mean, just this whole thing is, I can just hear Gwen responding to it right now. (laughs) But he did it. Now he's going from Bethlehem to Egypt. Egypt. Depending on where he lands in Egypt, it could be anywhere from 75 to 150 miles, which is a week plus of travel. Week plus of travel through through some pretty, pretty tough territory, climate wise, potentially hostile. And he remained in Egypt. Until the death of Herod. That's what he was told to do. That's what he did. There's this little added note. Until the death of Herod. We weren't told that at the beginning. Or he wasn't told that. But he remained there until then. Obeyed the Lord. Again there he's there. Is in Egypt. Remaining abiding. We don't know where. Um, I wouldn't try to figure out where. It's unimportant. If it was important we would have been told. But what we are told is that we don't really know where he went. We just have all these sort of general vague things about it. What we are told is that this is to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What is happening here is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matthew now roots this action in prophecy. The life of Jesus, from beginning to end, is accounted for in the Old Testament. It's interesting that Matthew is giving his sections of these steps in the migration of Jesus to Egypt and back up to Nazareth, and each one is based on Scripture. After these four Gospels were written, back in the first century, There are a lot of attempts later on to try to imitate these Gospels, and one of them was to try to expand on the early life of Jesus. I think someone even made a movie about it. I remember seeing, I think, some advertisements for it. Trouble is with all those expansions is, number one, they're way too late because it's supposed to be eyewitness testimony. The other problem is, is they just got no prophecy behind them. Matthew says, I'm telling you this because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. I'm telling you this because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament does not leave out the early life of Jesus. It tells us everything we need to know about the early life of Jesus. So if you're wondering, oh, wouldn't it be cool to fill in all the blanks about the early life of Jesus? Like, no, it wouldn't. That's how heresy is born. Uh, If you have to study it because you got to talk about it, uh, I feel sorry for you. I'm I'm not even going to do that. I'm like, that's just a waste of time. It's not based on prophecy. And there's a little bit of difference in this formula. This this is to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Spoken by the Lord is not the usual thing, this is to fulfill what what was spoken through the prophet. But in this case, it's spoken by the Lord. And the reason for that is, is that if you look at the prophecy itself, out of Egypt, I called my son. This is in the first person, isn't it? This is God himself speaking. He's not conveying to the prophet Hosea, tell this to the children of Israel. But he's speaking personally. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11. And when you look at Hosea 11, When Israel was a youth I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is not a prediction of some coming event. It's a reference to something that has already happened. When Israel was a youth I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. In Hosea's time that would be about eight, 900 years before that this occurred. In Hosea 11 God is lamenting the apostasy of the nation though as he says he had provided everything for them and had regarded them as his son and that he loved them. My son is an address of deep endearment. You find it in Proverbs, throughout Proverbs, particularly in the beginning chapters. Those Proverbs aren't given by some sage teacher to a class of followers. They're given as a father to a son. So this is not a classic prediction fulfillment paradigm. This is not a, this is going to happen, and it happened in the life of Jesus paradigm. So what is it? How is it that Matthew sees in a non-predictive passage something that fulfills the life of Jesus? Well, we ourselves spend a number of months wandering around in the wilderness, laying the foundation for that. That was actually my whole point. So when we got to Matthew, this verse, you would understand that the whole entire Old Testament is focused on the Messiah in so many different ways and from so many different angles. And the angle here is that Jesus Christ is the new Moses. And that is not just some theological manufactured item in the 20th 21st century. As we said before, New Testament references to the Old Testament are often pointers to whole sections and to broad themes. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we we looked at that where Moses says, there's going to come a person in the future like to me. God is going to raise him up. And if you don't listen to him, you're dead meat. In Acts 3.22 that passage is quoted and applied to Jesus Christ along with a lot of other prophetic passages. That Jesus is fulfilling Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the new Moses. Well, how is Matthew telling us that? I mean, out of Egypt have I called my son. What in the world does that have to do with the new Moses? Well, think about the parallels of these sections with the life of Moses. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 8-14, through 14, you see Pharaoh as the new regal villain in the narrative. There arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, didn't want anything to do with Joseph. My, how politicians can change, right? That's why for a Christian to put their hope in any politician is absurd. And for a Christian to be depressed because God can change politicians. He does it all the time. They change like the weather and who knows what the next one will bring. So investing in politics to try to establish something permanent, eternal. uh, Well, just need to read the Bible and read history. So another Pharaoh arises. He doesn't care or know anything about Joseph. He just cares about his own current uh, administration and how he can stay on top and get a little bit richer on the backs of other people. As he tells everybody, that's not what he's doing. And then this Pharaoh makes an attempt to kill Moses, kill all the baby boys of Israel. I mean, is that not what we see happening here in Matthew? Exodus 1, 15 through 22. And then, as Moses is, comes into Pharaoh's household by means of a, a little ark, he grows up. And finally, as he's growing up, he's starting to figure out that he's called to do something for the God of Israel. Gets himself in trouble by trying to do it by his own means, kills somebody, killed an Egyptian. Which is not what an Israelite, no matter how, what station they are, is allowed to do. Pharaoh seeks his life, as it says in Exodus 2:15, and he flees for his life to Midian. Is that not a parallel here? In chapter two, three and four, we see Moses being brought back to truly lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And in Exodus 419, there's a quote where God says, you go back to Egypt for those that seek your life are dead. It is identical word for word to what we read in chapter 2, verse 21, I believe. Verse 20, sorry. We'll get there in a a little bit and we'll see that the wording is kind of odd. It's odd because it's a quote from Exodus. You see, Matthew's conscious that he's talking to you about a new Moses and a new Exodus. He's consciously putting this forth. It's just, you know, takes us to read the Old Testament some to figure it out. So not only is there a new Moses, but there's also a new exodus. The old exodus was from bondage in Egypt. And from the dominion of Pharaoh through a great wilderness to a promised land. And Jesus is leading us from bondage to sin. And the dominion of Satan through the great wilderness of this world. The trials of a world that is arrayed against us to a promised new heavens and earth. We looked at that pattern, that Old Testament, New Testament pattern last year. And I did it for this reason. Jesus is the new Moses who will lead the new people of God. We're in Matthew, folks. Chapter 8. There's going to come those from the north, south, and east, and west and sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you yourselves will be left out of it. The new people of God. Chapter 18. I will build my ecclesia. The new people of God. Chapter 20, 21, the parables. The kingdom of God will be taken from you, the Jews, and given to a nation that will bring forth its fruits. The last things Jesus says in Matthew 28 go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. A new Moses to lead a new people of God and a new Exodus. Part of the rationale for Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan, part of the rationale for Jesus going and being tempted in the wilderness. Here we see the beginning of that. Jesus goes into Egypt, and Jesus comes out of Egypt, and Jesus crosses the Jordan and is tempted. All this is a pattern presented by the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus declares a new covenant in Matthew 26. New everything is what Matthew is presenting. We see this new exodus in Isaiah chapter 4. And that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And he goes on to say, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. Where does that language come from? Is that not that pillar of cloud and fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness? Here's the language of the king of a kingdom talked about in chapter 2. And when God brings this kingdom into being. And he brings all of his people from all nations together. He's going to cover them with a cloud by day. And flaming fire by night. Is that not what we read in the book of Revelation chapter 7? They'll hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. The heat of the sun will not smite them anymore. Is that not what we read in <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. This idea of a new Exodus and a new Moses is not some sort of esoteric bypath that scholars have dreamed up. This is at the heart of Old to New Testament revelation. Isaiah chapter 43 through 5. It's a familiar passage to us. Have you ever thought of it in this way? A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This desert highway language. Isn't just a reference to geographical location. This is starting to develop in Isaiah 40 on the new exodus. Isaiah 51, 9 through 11. Awake, wake, put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is a reference to Egypt. God cut Egypt in pieces. Who pierced the dragon, Pharaoh? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? And I don't know if you all sing this song, but it's a scripture song. I I have sung and sung. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord will return and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy will be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. God speaks to us of the coming redemption in the coming Messiah in terms of the Exodus imagery. The God who destroyed Egypt. The God who executed the Prince of Egypt. The God who opened the Red Sea. And made a path for people of God to walk over is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew brings that passage to bear. Out of Egypt have I called my son. There's more to it than that, but we don't have time. Jesus is the representative of his people. And as the representative of his people, he goes into Egypt, and he comes back out of Egypt, and he gets baptized, and he goes through a temptation. He's the representative head of the new Israel. Verse 16 begins a new section. Here's the narrative portion. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. Herod had already established plans to murder the Messiah. He was working it all out. He just needed some more information. And he really wanted to know, what's his name? You come back, tell me his name, I'm going to go and make sure I get him. Now the delay of the Magi coming back was really frustrating to Herod. But what really got Herod was when he realized, these guys have outsmarted me. So he thought he was a smart fella. He had all these plans, and he got outsmarted. And for him, that was unbearable, and he just became enraged. So he didn't go and kill all these children out of rage. He was enraged when he did it, but he had already planned to kill the Messiah, and so now he had to dial his plan back a little bit and say, well, I'm just going to have to throw my big net out there. I don't know specifically who it is, but I do know about how old he'll be. And so he sends his troops out to slay all the male children who are in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Now, that was not a very populous area, so folks, commentators, basically have sort of said it probably amount to about 20 or 30 children. One is way too many. But because this heartless and cruel act is not recorded anywhere else, it's not recorded in Josephus, Some people say, oh, this is just made up. Well, it's not made up. It fits the character of Herod. Herod killed literally thousands of people. When Herod would get in a rage or in a mood or in one of his paranoid tempers, he would kill two and three hundred people at a time. Don't ask me how someone gets that kind of a power, but they had it in those days. As I mentioned last week, he had arranged to have several thousand of the leaders of Israel had all been brought into the Hippodrome Theater when he was on his deathbed. And he had left a command to kill them all so there would be weeping and wailing at his death. I mean, this guy was out of it. And so this action is actually a very small action. It's very, you know, like insignificant to his usual brutal death pogroms that he sends out there. It's not his cruelest action, but it is the most significant one. No surprise that this little village set of villages that weren't really much in terms of political significance that you wouldn't hear about their children being killed. That's no surprise. So it's not significant because of the atrocity in itself. It's significant because of who the target was. They're going to kill Jesus. They're going to kill the Son of God. Has there ever been a more wicked, diabolical plot to kill someone than that in the history of the world? We're going to kill the Messiah. Now, we should never be naive, my brothers and sisters. I always think of that passage in Titus, to the pure, all things are pure, and we just cannot imagine anybody doing any violence for anything like this. But Satan hates God, and if he can get a hold of God, he'll try to kill him. That is how much Satan hates God and hates us. The world is under Satan's sway and they may not share the clarity about their animosity toward God that Satan has because Satan's really clear about his animosity. But they do share his hatred and they may not display the full hatred of the devil. Number one, they're limited. Number two, you know, they've, they're a little bit distracted. That's not the full definition of their existence. But the prince of this world has blinded their minds. Do not be fooled. The world is not of God. And the world is irrevocably. Arrayed against God. The Marxist utopia. That says we're going to have a fair. And equitable world. And everything will be socially just. Is a mirage. The world is full to the brim of sin and darkness. Government or any other, what would you say, dynamic that men can produce cannot fix sin. Now he killed everyone from two years old and upward. Some people try to make the calculations, but really we don't know what Herod's equation had. We don't know if the star when it you know, came into being for the Magi if that was about Jesus' birth or about Jesus' conception. So we don't know where the real starting point is and we don't know how much Herod padded the numbers to make sure that he got everybody who might even be anywhere near to being the Messiah. So we can't say that Jesus was two years old or this or that. All we can say is that Herod, in his diabolical calculations, said, "Anyone within two years, I'm going to get him to make sure I accomplish my goal." And this is to fill what had been spoken through Jeremiah. Then, what was spoken through had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. This is the first time a prophet is named. It's the usual formula for saying a prophecy is fulfilled. Prophecy comes out of Jeremiah 31, 15. And again, it's not a prediction. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. It's interesting that that in Jeremiah 31, it's actually a very positive chapter. The chapter is full of statements that God is going to bring restoration from your being, being exiled into Assyria and Babylon. All over in that chapter, it said, hey, I loved you. So why would Jeremiah pick the only bummer verse out of the chapter and apply it to what went on in Bethlehem? One of the things to know is that Rachel... Died in childbirth. Read that in Genesis chapter 35. She actually named Benjamin. She named Benjamin before she died ben- Benomi, which means son of my sorrow. And Jacob's like, I don't think I want to, you know, I already got it hard because I love Rachel and I don't want to look at my son and be reminded of what happened. So he renamed Ben, ben- Benobi to be Benjamin. But there's a great love story there in Genesis, and it was a very popular story among the Israelites. And Rachel was well known among the Jews and considered, particularly by all the women, to be the mother of sorrows, the one you remember and look to when you're going through things, perhaps even like this. And in Jeremiah 31, there's the exiles. And Rachel is portrayed as sort of being there and weeping just in deep tears and deep sorrow and deep grief. It's a voice heard in Ramah because Ramah was the place, one of the launching points where they would gather the children of Israel, the Assyrians were gathering the children of Israel, in this case the Babylonians, sorry. The Babylonians were gathering the children of Israel and they staged them in Ramah and then they took them through the desert back to Babylon. So Rama was the staging point. You can read about that in Jeremiah 40. A voice was heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. They were being carried away. She's presented as one weeping over all the exiles, being led captive from Rama to Assyria. Matthew sees in her grief the ultimate fulfillment in the messianic calamity. The weeping that occurred in Bethlehem was a weeping that was the culmination of wickedness and evil against the salvation of God. And it's fitting for him to pull it out of Jeremiah because right after that it says don't weep says, we heard the mourning, but don't mourn because the exiles are going to come back and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and by the way, I really love you and I'm affirming my love for you. I'm going to bring you back and when I bring you back, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. It's one of the Christians' most favorite passages in the Old Testament, should be. You should always know Jeremiah 31, 31. I mean, that should be just one of them. And it's fitting to put here because the new Exodus is going to bring a new salvation. Based on a new covenant. It will create a new people of God. And a new Moses. Jesus will be leading them. And so here is Matthew again. Reaching into the Old Testament. And bringing a fulfillment. That's odd to us at first. Perplexing at first. Until we see the bigger picture. That he's painting. Of this newness that Jesus brings. At the very beginning. Of his gospel. Well, I was going to give a picture of the book of Revelation, but we won't go there. Real quick, the last section is pretty much historical narrative. But when Herod died around 4 BC, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. The angel's always decisive. He doesn't say, oh, come on, wake up. It's like, get up, buddy. Take the child. Get going. Man up. That's things to do here. The Messiah is, you know, this is a temporary situation. It's a temporary provision. We need to get the Messiah back into the land of Israel because we have big plans for him because he's going to be called a Nazarene one day. And so we got to get him to Nazareth. And he says, you need to go into the land because those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took a child and his mother, again that phrase, came into the land of Israel. So there he is, he's coming out of Egypt, back up into Israel somewhere. We're not, say, say, we're not told where he actually landed. But when he heard that Archelius was reigning over Judah, Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now Archelaus was as cruel as his father, but he wasn't as capable of his father. He didn't have the finesse of his father. He didn't have the manipulative skills of his father, so everybody hated him. And 10 years after he became uh, the ruler in his father's place, all the Jews went to Rome and got him deposed, and he got banished to somewhere. He was just a a big jerk. So he knew, everybody knew that Archelaus was as rotten as Herod the Great. And here's someone with some common sense. Christians have common sense. Please have common sense. He didn't say, "Oh, well, this is the Messiah. Lord's going to take care of him." I don't know. He says, "All right, this is troubling me. I'm worried about this. Probably praying." And then he was <clears throat> going to be warned in a dream. Now, this was the whole land of Herod the Great. When he died, it got divided into Archelaus having the southern portion. His brother <clears throat> um, Antipas had these sort of secondary portions, and Philip had third portions, and Salome, his sister, had some little teeny portions. And so Israel was parceled up, and this is what um, Joseph came back to. Then he was warned to God in a dream, again, dreams, divine guidance. He left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in the city called Nazareth. So he's up to Nazareth, up in Galilee, and there's reasons for that. As we're going to read in chapter 4, you know, uh, there's a great light shines in that district out of Isaiah chapter 9. And him going to, know, to Nazareth was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall become a Nazarene. Now notice, it's spoken through the prophets. This is a generalization. It's not a quote from one prophet. It's not said what was said by this prophet in this place. This is a generalization. This is what is spoken through the prophets. If you were to sum up the prophets on this matter of where the Messiah was going to end up landing, well, he's going to be called a Nazarene. He's going to go to Nazareth. Now, that doesn't mean he's a Nazarite. People mistake that. That has nothing to do with being a Nazarite. He's a Nazarene. That is, he is a Nazarene. He is going to be a person whose hometown will be considered to be Nazareth. So you might better read it through the prophets that he shall be called Nazarene. This is their sort of, if you want to go and look, this is what you would conclude. Now, how in the world did they conclude that? Well, there's differing, you know, views. It's a tough one. When I first looked at it, I'm like, this is impossible. But someone did have something that seemed a little bit reasonable, and it's this. If you were a Nazarene or if you were from Nazareth, well, you were considered a low life. Remember what Philip said when, they, when he was told, hey, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, what was his response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In Acts 24, 5, when they were trying to accuse Paul before the Romans, they said, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. We've got him now. These Nazarenes are wretched folks. He's from Nazareth. He's he's dealing with Nazarites or Nazareans. And so many think that the reason that Matthew concluded this, that he would be called a Nazarene or a Nazarean is because in the old throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is not coming with pomp and ceremony, but when he first comes, he's lowly, riding upon a donkey. He's insignificant in presentation. There's nothing in him that when we see him, we should desire him. He was a loser in the eyes of the world. And so he's called a Nazarene. So brothers and sisters, Jesus came into this world and was willing to be aligned as the biggest loser. To be considered that. So he could identify with all of us losers. And that's why he did it. So here's Matthew. The history of Jesus. His early life. Based solely and squarely on prophetic revelation. God does talk about the early life of his son. And we have it here in Matthew. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we uh, just thank you for your grace. Thank you for this story. Thank you that. We have a narrative that's rooted in thousands of years of prophecy. We don't have to wonder or guess if it's true. Uh, Lord, this Matthew was just taking what's already been stated and filling in the details. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son to be that new Moses. To lead us out of our own wilderness, our own personal Egypt, our own personal bondage and dominion of Satan. Lord, we're going through this world and you're taking care of us through this world. You are feeding us with bread from heaven. You're taking